Welcome to the new series of Spoken Earth, in-depth interviews with some of the leading environmental thinkers of our time. People who are challenging the status quo and giving us new ways to think about nature and our place within it at a time when we really need it. Today, I'm in conversation with Suzanne Simard, Professor of Forest Ecology in the University of British Columbia's Faculty of Forestry, and author of the book, Finding the Mother Tree. We had a very narrow view of how ecosystems work, and it led us to the huge problems we're facing today, loss of biodiversity, climate change, you know, that all you can trace so much of that back to this narrow parochial thinking. And when I came in, I started looking at the forest as not as a bunch of competitors, but as a network of communicators. And suddenly our view of the forest has changed and, and everything we do with the forest should change in concert with that. I'd first heard about her work long before I'd heard of Suzanne Simard. Several years ago, a friend who was a photographer was on a plane back from the rainforest in Borneo. And on the plane, he sat next to a biologist who told him about mother trees. The trees in the forest weren't all scrabbling for the available resources, he said, that Darwinian vision of nature that we've all grown up with. Instead, certain ancient trees in the forest were sharing their resources with the younger trees, providing vital nutrients to those that they shaded out bringing up water with their deeper roots, and when they died, they distributed their energy as a kind of legacy to all the trees that surrounded them, not only to their own offspring or even to their own species, but to other trees as well. And when these huge trees were logged, it left a gap in the forest that was about more than just space. It was like removing a village elder. Suzanne Simard has spent a lifetime uncovering these ideas, and her work has caught a nerve recently. She is a fictionalised character in Richard Power's Pulitzer Prize winning The Overstory, a wide-ranging novel about the entanglement between trees and people. The best-selling The Secret Life of Trees brought her research to a wider public, and her findings even fed into the forests in Avatar. Last year she published her own book, Finding the Mother Tree, which has recently come out in paperback. It is a book about forest ecology, but it is also her autobiography. Far from dispassionate, it looks at how the work of a scientist is influenced by their own life, where they live and how. It's about how our tragedies, our grief and joy are echoed in the natural world. And it uncovers perhaps one of the most important discoveries of our time, with the power to upend how we see the world. That species are not fighting tooth and claw to dominate, but instead that the forests are a system of entanglement and cooperation, with trees sharing their resources and information through mycelia, the underground network of fungi, a network that very much resembles our own internet, or indeed, our own brains. I've had you in my mind quite a lot recently because I've got a one-year-old boy who eats a lot of dirt. And uh, I remember reading that bit in your book where you were said that um, from quite a young age you had to be wormed quite often because, mm -hmm. because you were eating the forest. And I thought that would be quite a nice place to start because kind of symbolically it really shows that, you know, you, you really were part of these woods that you grew up in mm -hmm. as well, right? You, you lived in the shadow of 
Mount Simard, um, yeah. that was named after your great grandparents from Quebec yeah. who pioneered there. So you're kind of very much of the woods in yeah. a sense. Is that is that fair to say? It's yes, yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, I grew up in those woods, as, as did my dad, and as did my grandfather, and yeah. So we've have many generations there, and of course, growing up as a kid, like your son, you know. <laughs> The, the trees are your friends and mm-hmm. they're your playmates and you climb them. And I was a great, great tree climber. Okay. <laughs> I used to always climb up and try to touch God <laughs> falling out of the tree. And, and then my sister would haul me away in the wagon, but yeah. And eating, eating the, the dirt was always one of my favorite pastimes. It was, I think it gave me a great deal of comfort. Yeah. Yeah. What does dirt taste like? Um, it depends on where you, you're getting it okay. from. Um, like if you get it from under a maple tree, it's actually quite sweet. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, and very, um, you, you know, it's mixed with the mineral soil, so it's got nice gritty bits to it mm-hmm. and um, and rich. Okay. Yeah, sweet and rich. If you get it from uh, under a, a, a Douglas fir, it's very, there's a lot of needles in it. It's quite tart, mm-hmm. almost lemony, <laughs> um, chewy, because right. there's lots of threads and roots. Um, if you get it from under a birch tree, it's uh, it's kind of, you know, it's it's also quite tart and tanniny um, and lots of fiber <laughs> that goes through you. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <Lots> <laughs> so there's of already worms. this idea that this kind of exchange between that these trees aren't these isolated things that there's already this sort of exchange yeah. between the soils and the yeah. and the trees. They're yeah, they're entwined together. Yeah. You know, the soil is energized by the trees mm-hmm. and the tree trees provide that energy through photosynthesis and then it drives this whole subterranean food web of all these creatures that um, are organized in a in a food web so that they eat each other down this food chain and in the process of eating each other that they they spit out or they exude the soup you know they basically urinate it out or excrete it out and that's how nutrients are made available to plants is through all these creatures eating each other that's what drives the nutrient cycles Mm -hmm. so you had this you had this beginning kind of being very much part of the forest in a sense and then and then you went into logging which was which was kind of a natural step for you I suppose yeah um my great-grandfather was a horse logger and Mm -hmm. they started out in Quebec um after emigrating from France and they logged in Quebec but um eventually emigrated across Canada through Saskatchewan and to British Columbia by train and the family was a big Catholic family and um my my great grandfather thought that they were they were going to California, and that they wanted to get out of the rain and snow of Quebec, and so they headed west, and they arrived, in in this kind of cattle car, this family, and the doors of the cattle car opened, and all the kids jumped out, and they landed in snow up to their noses. They were in British Columbia. Okay, in a rainforest. <laughs> in a rainforest. Um, but they, they grew to love it and stayed. They didn't... Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and logged. And they logged, and then your grandfather logged, and your father yeah. logged. But logging was quite different to what we think of as logging. Yeah. Now. I mean, these were wild primary forests, meaning... Huge trees. Huge trees. You know, there were no roads. Um where there were roads going into where my grandparent, my great grandparents settled n- near Mabel Lake, you know, there was a trail and then there was, they made a wagon road and it would take, you know, it was, had, um, you know, 
sort of like trees that were laid side by side and that made the bed of the road and my dad always used to talk about how bumpy it was when they had to go along the road and and then eventually eventually well they built a house um along the river and then made a farm um and started logging and farming and the logging was yeah it was very dangerous work and very slow work but it was a family business Mm -hmm. and uh and yeah horses were very much part of it and uh they would log on the the mountainsides around Mabel Lake and um yeah and way up in the mountains <laughs> or you know quite far like maybe a kilometer up the mountain and so they had to actually send the logs down flumes um which are they're wooden they're really like wooden trails almost like a luge <laughs> that my grandfather and his brothers would build these flumes made of birch logs and then the the logs would you know the horses would bring the logs to the flumes and then the they would send the logs down these flumes and they'd wend their way down the mountain and end up in the lake um well, and that then incredibly dangerous very dangerous yeah yeah yeah, there was a lot, you know, um, some of my family members died, of course, mm-hmm. the young men, and a lot of them, you know, my all my uncles had missing fingers or, you know, some missing appendage because yeah. they would... Right of passage. It's just very, very mm. dangerous, yeah. But exciting. But exciting so and exciting. much more sustainable, I suppose, than yeah. the sorts of clear-cut forestry that, that you went into, that you found when you started working. Yeah, so so these old-growth forests had many species in them, and they were selecting certain species. So at first they focused on white pine. Um, so just think, you know, in a forest, 15 species growing in this entangled web, and there'd be the occasional white pine, so they would go you know, find that pine. My grandfather would make a map of where it was and they'd say, okay, we're going to, we're going to cut this pine. Um, and that, but it was a huge process because these trees were huge Mm -hmm. and they had to put springboards in, in the tree so that they could get above the swell of the butt swell of the tree. Um, or if it was in winter, they had to get above the snow lines, which was usually two or three meters deep. And then they would cross cut saw the trees and it would take a few days to cut Mm -hmm. a single tree. And, and so then they would move to another part of the forest. And so, you, you know, when, when I would visit these places where the logging, because we would often, when I was a kid, we'd try and find like the old tools in the, in the forest and find the old flumes. It was, um, and you couldn't tell, you know, where they'd logged because it was full of forest again. Uh-huh. It just bounced right back. Okay. Yeah. And so that is very different than when I became a forester myself. Yeah. So was, tell me, what did you, when you went into forestry, what did, what did you find? And what were, what were these kind of findings that led you into the, into the scientific work that you then began later on? Yeah. So, 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 you know, my grandfather, great grandfather, they logged through, you know, through the early part of the ni- 1900s and late 1800s. And by the time I became a forester, it was in the late 1970s. And by then, industrial logging had really taken a grip of Western Canada. And so it was like, you know, accelerating mechanization and um, more companies and more people. And instead of just family operations, they they merged into corporate corporate logging and and then the province would start started to regulate that harvest because what seemed like an endless resource in the early 1900s quickly 
people were realizing, hey, we need to start regulating it. Uh, and so that's when I showed up on the scene. Mm-hmm. And by then they were clear-cut logging and there were logging trucks and chainsaws. And, um, you know, there weren't feller bunchers yet. But every time there's an increase in mechanization, it speeds up and expands the the, the extent of the logging. And it's more thorough and it's more rapid. And, you know, it, and now it's just, it's a completely different thing. Yeah. It's not a craft anymore. It's it's a it's an industry. Yeah, I've thought that sort of from the time that I've spent traveling in Alaska. That you go through these forests, and it just feels unthinkable that you could exhaust it one day. It yeah. feels hysterical to sort of have the you know to, to worry about taking it because there's just so much of it. How could, but then, but like you say, it's a finite resource. And yeah, it's happening. I mean, yeah. I, I always say, you know, I grew up in a province of old growth f- forest, meaning that you know you you couldn't see logging on the landscape at all. Mm-hmm. You know, the the f- the forest was shaped by natural disturbances like fire or insect outbreaks or whatever would disturb the forest, and so it all was very complex and. Uh, and pres- it seemed so pristine to, you know, as a kid, I didn't think of it that way. It was just my home. And now I live in a province of clear cuts, right? In my, in my lifetime, I'm 61 years old. I've seen the complete transformation of mm-hmm. our forest. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really heartbreaking to yeah. tell you the truth. Yeah. So hopefully, you know, when we'll come on to this, but through your work and we can talk about regeneration, but, but let, let's talk about how that work began. When you started in the forestry, you had this job of, looking at these new fields, can we say, that were, that were being planted with saplings, with fir saplings. What, 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 did, what, what did you see when you were working in those fields? Yeah, so we call them clear cuts, but they are like fields. Mm-hmm. Um, they're like a big football field. <laughs> um, and uh, a clear cut means that you t- they would cut down all of the trees. You know, it doesn't matter if it was a small tree or a big tree, everything was cut. And, and of course, the understory, the plants that grow under the trees, were very damaged or or completely stripped away, um, and and a lot of the the forest floor, the organic material was was torn up, and um, some of it was scraped in piles, and there was a sea of stumps. <laughs> and so then my job as a young forester was to go and reforest. Okay. And so we were um, the industry at that point was uh, until that time. So until about in the 1970s, there was no requirement to reforest these clear cuts at all it was not part of the legislation but but by the 80s they were starting to require it there was there was some policies put in place and so that's when I showed up that was when I came on the scene and so that we were we were planting little seedlings that were grown in nurseries but not Um, from a kind of environmental point of view it was more just to have something else to harvest in another hundred years exactly yeah yeah it was very much a farming mentality and still is today yeah so so they wanted to do what we, they called liquidate the old growth, like completely take down the old growth, because that was viewed as, I mean, it was lucrative. Mm-hmm. Huge amounts of money were made. Fortunes were made. Mm-hmm. You see those fortunes and that wealth in British Columbia to this very day, these huge companies. Um, and, and they wanted to liquidate the old growth and then turn it into these tree farms. And and uh, even though they were making piles of money, one of the excuses that they, I often heard was, as soon as we can get rid of that last old growth, we can retool our mill, so all we have to do is cut small trees. And so that, you know, and so now they've taken, we've taken forests that grew to 1,000, 2,000 years old and put them on what we call a rotation of about 40 to 60 years. Okay. And so the trees will never get big again. Right. That's the plan. They'll yeah. always stay small. 
and once those big old trees go, so does so much more. Right. Yeah. Yeah, well, it makes me think of, you know, carrots or something that everyone has to be a, stand, a standard size for processing through a factory. And that's, that's yeah. what it is, not yeah. Yeah, that it's become and it, yeah. a business, essentially. It's yeah. a business. I mean, the, the irony of it is that it's not, you know, when, when a logging company goes back and logs a, a plantation, they get about a third the value that they did out of the old growth forest. Mm-hmm. Because those old trees were huge and and were grew slowly and mm-hmm. the wood was of beautiful quality and massive timbers that were sold all around the world um, and now we're we're you know we're no different than the southern pine region of the u s right we're growing sort of like these toothpicks <laughs> in a place that can grow massive trees yeah but even these toothpicks you found weren't doing very well these firs that you yeah. were you, that you were looking at were were tired and yellow and small and dying and yeah so so what was happening is along with this clear cutting there um the other thing that was making you know it's hard to grow a tree in a big open space like that because there's they get sunburned they get frostbite Mm -hmm. um and they also get infections and and now you know today if you go into a plantation about half the the seedlings that are planted will never become trees because they're infected with all kinds of things um but part of the reason that i i was cluing into even back in the 1980s when I started doing this work was that um, what we were doing the cultivating practice which was to get rid of the plants we thought were weeds and that was the native plant community right weed being anything that is the thing you don't want right Mm -hmm. the eye of the beholder is defines Uh the weed and so the foresters thought anything that wasn't a conifer tree that was going to be the next crop had to go and so that meant the birches and the maples and the aspens and the cherry trees and the huckleberries and the thimbleberries. And this, they, it had to go. And so that started this whole industry of obliterating native plants. With chemicals? Chemicals. Anything that they... Chemicals, was, chemicals were the most efficient way to get rid of yeah. them. So Monsanto um, built up a whole arsenal of chemicals to use. Um Big companies were created to go out and spray the land. The helicopters would fly over spraying these these uh, herbicides. And then, of course, people didn't really like it. And Silent Spring had been written, like, in the 19, early 1960s. And so there was already kind of, like, this suspicion out there that maybe these, you know, herbicides aren't so great. And so there started to be a lot of public opposition to it. But it wasn't enough to stop it. Um, and in fact, you know, the, the government went on to make a law that said you have to get rid of these native plants or we're, we're going to make you, um, we're going to fine you or we're not going to allow you to, you know, pass pass the test that, that you've reforested the land. Because by then it was also a law that, that it had to be reforested. Um, and so what I saw was that by cleansing these plantations of their natural diversity, that these pla- they were getting infected with pathogens mm-hmm. and insect infestations. And I, and I really wanted to understand, you know, what have we done? <laughs> what yeah. are we missing here? Yeah. So you're actually fighting not just a sort of common held belief, but you're fighting government law in, yeah. in the beginning to try, and, to try yes. and change these practices. Yeah. And so that led you on. It, it sounds like kind of almost from the beginning you had a hunch. Like even as a little kid, you had a hunch that that this forest was this kind of network and Isn't a community. Isn't that funny? Uh, yeah. And you even spent your whole life proving yeah. a hunch that you had climbing trees as a kid. Yeah, I think it was more than a hunch. It was where I grew up. It was my home. Yeah. And, and I knew the home, my home, as this 
you know, this amazing uh, cathedral of of plants that live together mm-hmm. and needed each other. That they were, you know, they were their comrades. They were companions. Um, I, I knew that because they they lived, bes- you know, they lived next door to each other for hundreds of years. Like um, they needed each other. So so yeah, that was very much part of my 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 very being and and how I grew up and how my grandfather taught me to see the forest as well. Um, and so yeah, so it was it was more than a hunch. It was how I saw the world. Mm-hmm. It was my whole worldview. Um, and so, yeah, so I took that and I started to, to, I started to fight. You're listening to Spoken Earth in conversation with forest ecologist Suzanne Simard. Having become disillusioned with the policies of the industrial logging that she was a part of, she started her PhD to try and better understand what forests needed to be able to thrive. I asked her about those early experiments that gradually began to uncover the tangled web of fungi and trees that made up the community of the forest. So in my home forest, I, like I said, there were many species that grew together and, um, and that we were taking a 15-species forest to a one-species forest of Douglas fir or pine and getting rid of all the other ones to, to try to focus that growth just on those firs or those pines. Um, and that was, grew out of you know, evolutionary theory <laughs> that, that competition is what drives natural selection. And it was applied in ecology carte blanche with thinking that whole plant communities or forests developed because of you know, the competitive aspects of the ability to usurp resources from your neighbor. Um, and so the idea that birch and cottonwoods were weeds because they stole resources from the firs drove this draconian forest policy that I talked about that required that we get rid of these native plants. And so I thought this, and it was, I saw the the infections increasing in those plantations. And so I I knew that there was something going on below ground because they were root pathogens that were infecting the firs. And, And so I started my PhD trying to understand how how these pathogens were trying to were getting in there and inf- and making these infections and and I learned about mycorrhizas at the time or I'd learned about them before but I really got interested in them then and mycorrhizas are a kind of fungus they're not pathogens they don't infect and kill trees they're not saprotrophs they don't decay stuff they're uh, mutualists in and in that they grow in or on the roots of all the trees, you know, in the forest. And they, they take photosynthate from the tree and they use that energy to grow a big mycelium through the soil. And that mycelium picks up nutrients and water and brings it back to the tree and they exchange. So they, they both benefit from this exchange. And so I was realizing that in these infected forests, that these this mycorrhizal community, of which there are in a hectare of forests, there would be you know a hundred species of mycorrhizal fungi, um, that that we were simplifying that fungal community and creating holes in it, kind mm-hmm. of like it was becoming porous, and that was allowing the pathogens to get in. So. I started looking at, you know, birch and fir and their fungal communities. And I'd also heard about work that had been done by David Reed here in the UK at the University of of Sheffield. And he had grown, he was a mycologist, so he studied fungi. And he had observed in nature, you know, that pine trees needed these mycorrhizas. 
And so he, he grew this experiment in his lab where he had pine trees in a little clear perspex box, and he inoculated them with a single fungus, and they, the, the fungus connected the two seedlings together. Um, and he, he did some experiments with those where he would label one of the seedlings with radioactive carbon dioxide, and he, wa- he was able to photograph that radioactivity moving over to its neighboring pine seedling. And he also did some experiments where he shaded one of the seedlings, and even more of the radioactivity moved over. And that study was published in Nature, and that was right around the time I was observing these dying plantations and starting my doctoral research. And so I thought, I bet that's going on in our forests. Mm-hmm. I, I bet we're disrupting this network. And nobody had really looked at it in forests, so that's what I set out to do. And and I started uncovering this great web that connected the you know these plants that we were killing with the conifers. And I started doing similar experiments to, to David and um, you know, was labeling birch and fir with different isotopes of carbon, uh, carbon dioxide, and then watching where the isotopes went. And I found that they moved back and forth between these trees, between birch and fir. I shaded Douglas fir just like David shaded his pines, and I found that birch sent more and more carbon to fir the more it shaded Douglas fir. And that really turned the thinking around in that you know these birches were yeah they were they were shading the douglas firs they were competing for light but they were also sharing and the more they competed the more sh- they shared this carbon with their neighbors and so that made me realize that this was a web right that this was an entangled web of mutual aid mm-hmm. and then as your research has gone on you found you know, time after time, you sort of proposed a question and, and looked at it. The, the, yeah. the trees are communicating in different ways to say if a tree is being attacked by a parasite, it will tell other trees in the vicinity to prepare itself in different ways. So, and then eventually leading to this idea of of the mother tree, which is what you, which is what your book is titled, "Finding the Mother Tree." Do you want to tell us a bit about what the mother tree represents in the forest, which are these huge old growth trees that? were being were being clear cut and taken out. Yeah, yeah, in fact targeted by the logging mm-hmm. companies. The bigger the tree, the more lucrative the tree was. But I I started looking at what the pattern of this web was in an old growth forest um with my graduate students um and uh, Kevin Byler was the main grad student who who worked with me and we mapped what the network looked like by using, you know, all kinds of fancy DNA techniques to to identify which f- fungus was you know, associated with this tree? Was it linked to this tree over here? We found that the whole forest was connected together. (laughs) The small trees, the big trees, they were all connected. Um, But the big trees, which have these great big root systems and many fine roots, were the hubs of the network. They were the ones that had the greatest number of connections. So in the forest we were looking at, for example, one big old tree was connected to 80% of the other trees. Whereas the smaller ones would be connected to, you know, a few. Um, just they're small, and they don't have a lot of energy coming from their leaves. They, they're not able to disperse a lot through the network. And so they're just, they're more dependent on receiving um, than providing to the network. Mm-hmm. But these big old trees were the nucleus. They were the, the great energizer of the forest. And you take out one of them and... Everything is lost. I mean, what happens is it, it would be like, you know, in a family, if, if the father died or, right. or left, mm-hmm. the family has to reorganize itself. Mm-hmm. Like who's going to, who's going to, you know, fix the bathroom and who's going to make, 
make money to you know provide the food on the table and you, you have to readjust and the same thing happens in the forest when the mother tree is gone um you know there's no provider of the seed anymore <laughs> for one and and then the the great you know conduit of energy flux into the soil is gone now it's got to be redistributed that responsibility if you will to the other trees and so the network reorganizes so that the forest you know is is really striving to survive it's trying to heal itself from that loss um but yeah it, it is a major impact yeah because these mother trees are, are favoring their kin is that right but they're also providing for for non-kin and non-species yeah well we started out i started out looking at multiple species being linked together yeah and it's kind of funny looking back and thinking why did i start with many species at once it's the most complicated place to start <laughs> but it was you know it's because it was linked to what i was worried about at the right, time which was your, your hunch your worldview from yeah, yeah of well, this community you know, yeah we were reducing the diversity of the forest and so i wanted to know what the what was why was that diversity important? Um, but now I look back and I think, well, it was way easier to work with one species. <laughs> um, and and um, so, so yeah, so once we discovered that the, these old trees were the hubs of the forest, we started working, I started working with my grad students on, you know, how they actually facilitated the regeneration of seedlings around them of the same species, of different species. And we found that they, it made a big difference if they were connected to the old trees. And of course, that led to the next question of, can they recognize their own offspring? Do they favor their own kin? Mm -hmm. And so we did these elaborate experiments where we grew uh, full sibling seedlings using special seed that we had, you know, basically cultivated for us through our breeding program. It, it took a long, long time. We grew up these trees and we planted these kin seedlings and, and strangers and kins and all these kinds of configurations around these old trees. And, by the way, part of our experiments, too, meant going to the forest and getting cones from these old mother trees and the way, you, you know, you could either climb the tree, so thinking of a 40 or 50 meter tall tree, or more commonly, we'd shoot the cones down using a shotgun. So you'd like, you know, <laughs> shoot, and you have to be a good shot, and, and the cones would fall yeah. down and collect the cones and take the cones back and grow seedlings from them. Because right, these experiments are not quick, right? If They're not quick. If you're searching trees, you have to go at a tree's yeah. speed. You know, and so the grad students who did that work, it took years yeah. to do this work. Um, but sure enough, we found that the, the Douglas fir do recognize their siblings. They recognize Amazing. their own offspring. And when we grow them, when they're connected to the old trees, that they the old trees actually transmit. We, we've labeled these old trees with carbon-13, like injecting the phloem with carbon-13 and able to discover that more carbon goes straight to the, the kin seedlings than to stranger seedlings that we purposely plant nearby. Um, these seedlings that are the kin grow faster. They've got better nutrition. They support bigger mycorrhizal networks. So they've got this beautiful head start. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it, it's fascinating. Yeah, like a loving family. I mean, it's, it's yeah. yeah. And... Yeah. And so you, so you did this work through the, through the 80s, through the 90s, and you, you sort of tried to bring these findings into forestry and met up with quite a lot of resistance, yeah. it's fair to say, isn't it? I yeah. think. And, then, and then in 1997, Nature published your findings mm -hmm. um, and coined this term, the wood wide web, which, which has stuck, dogged you around yeah. ever since. <laughs> um, 
but and and, and to, I don't know. To me, to talk about it as the internet is almost a bit reductive in a way. You, you talk about it much more as a sort of something verging on a on a brain, on a on, on the, the the exchange that's happening underground, the the synapses, the neural pathways, the 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 nodes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, people started analyzing networks decades ago. There was this whole branch of mathematics called graph theory. And it, and it was try to describe these linkages in different systems, right? So it was a systems-level study. It's very mathematical. And it kind of didn't, um, I don't know, it, it, it kind of stayed kind of semi-relevant for a long time. But then people started using those tools to describe neural pathways in brains. And it turns out that there are certain patterns that get repeated in nature. And, and the pattern in the soil in this underground network this wood wide web it's actually patterned after a neural network they're called biological neural networks if you want to look it up right it, um, and so and it turns out that that the the compounds that are moving through this underground network um, a lot of them are amino acids it's mostly amino acids so that means carbon and nitrogen hooked into a compound and one of the the most common one that moves is glutamate. And that is actually one of our most common neurotransmitters in our own brains. And so, you know, these things uh, are, these wonderful, highly evolved um, patterns and, and compounds and processes are repeated across nature and have evolved simultaneously in multiple ways because they work. Um, and so, yeah, there's there's a great deal of similarity mm-hmm. between the wood wide web and our our own neural networks, our brains. And does that allow you to to speculate to to speculate what is, you know, our, our brain is just a jumble of biological processes as well, right? Except we confer it this kind of huge yeah. value and importance, and, yeah. but something with equivalent kind of complexity and is is out there in the forest. Yeah. And yeah, it's making me think, right, if if you, if I took my brain out of my skull and I chopped it up and tried to paste it back together, it wouldn't work, right? Mm. <laughs> um, but all those parts are still there, but they're, they're not getting energized by something that is far deeper, far more mysterious than we understand. It's the same in a forest. If you took that web and chopped it up and tried to put it back together, it wouldn't work either. But but when it's self-organized in a natural system like it is, out of it, there's all these emergent properties. Um, so an emergent property is like, you know, in our neural networks, for example, we've got all these neurons and axons, and out of it emerges thought and love and emotion and symphonies and mm. physics mm. and you know and and the same in a forest there emerges out of that network um the ability to to make oxygen and to to um, support biodiversity which has song like songbirds and you know animals that live together and depend on each other and 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 that the forest can sequester carbon and store carbon and m- moderate our carbon cycle you know, those are incredibly life-giving emergent properties that come out of these complex systems. Mm. So, yeah, so many similarities. And, of course, I've, I've inf- make those inferences. Who wouldn't? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Well, a lot, of, a lot of people wouldn't, I suppose, yeah. because that article in Nature had a huge amount of right. pushback, didn't it? It, it did. And, and I think it, it was because um, the, we were so invested in this idea that competition drove uh, plant communities. Mm-hmm. So invested that it drove ecology, that that was the prime 
primary mechanism or relationship that made communities what they were. And it was so, um, in retrospect, it was so short-sighted. But that was, I think that was, that they felt I was challenging Darwin, you know, this this widely accepted law, basically, of natural selection. And I wasn't doing that. Mm. I was saying it's more to, there's more to it than this. Yeah, competition happens, but there's, there's a whole host of other things going on, too. And even Darwin knew that, too. He wrote about this cacophony of relationships among all these different creatures, and it was in that, in that incredible soup of relationship that natural selection occurred. But somehow it got... It got winnowed down to a very simplistic way of seeing evolution and then ecology, unfortunately, and then the application of ecology, which is what you, what is forestry and agriculture or, or any resource management. Mm-hmm. And so it was that great vested interest in keeping those that law sacrosanct and and to keep all those industries you know fed and supported because if if the law fell apart then all that else would fall apart that's how i see it now and i think that's where that huge backlash came Mm. from that well i think it feels like there's almost something quite comfortable in the idea of the survival of the fittest right because it allows us to think well we're only dominating all these other species because you know, it's just it's just part of the biological law, and 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 it has this sort of strongman idea, and 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 uh, you know, for that you know, Darwin and his ideas caught on at the sort of peak of empire, and and it, we tried to think of science as this very sort of objective, rational idea, but we sort of get the science we deserve, maybe <laughs> you know, and 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 maybe only now we're starting to be able to think that well, perhaps it's not all about yeah. competition. Yeah. That's not how people thrive. Yeah. Right. They, we live in communities. Uh, and, you know, if if you, let's take that thought experiment to the extreme. Like if, let's say there's a plant that is dominant and competitive and it, it's, it starts, well, maybe the human species, maybe it's not a thought experiment. You know, the human species has done this, I guess. And you, and you start to reduce the diversity. Let's go back to the plant community. You reduce the plant community diversity and pretty soon you've got that one plant. Um, it's dominating all else and it's, you know, it's shaded out all the other plants and the diversity goes from maybe like 20 species to one, but it's everywhere. Um, the problem with that, it's really vulnerable then. So if something comes along and kills that one species, there's nothing left to provide the energy to fuel the whole cycle, the biogeochemical cycles. There's no plant community left. Or another another thing is it's also not as productive because one species can't capture all the resources that a multitude of species can capture because mm. they have all these different niches. Mm. And so you actually lose productivity in the long run by um, reducing diversity. And you could argue that in the human community, when we lose diversity, you also lose productivity because there's not, you know, the ideas become narrowed and you don't have uh, uh, innovation happening so well. It's the, it's the same thing in, in plant communities. And yet we've kind of fetishized this idea of, of dominance. And I, I, I used the word strongman just then. And I, mm-hmm. I wonder, is that part of, you know, you, you've been a woman working in two male worlds really the the logging industry and then the sort of scientific academic community um you call them mother trees is 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 you being a woman having that 
alternative approach it, it feels like a sort of quite a kind of toxic masculinity this idea of this kind of dominance and you're really pushing back against that does that yeah I, does that I have mean, a role yeah i think taken to ex its extreme it, it is there is some of that toxic masculinity um it's it's getting um diluted as more women and and a greater diversity of of nationalities and genders and the whole thing it's 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 gotten a lot better but but certainly when i started that that masculinity was was everywhere and it was really hard to make inroads into it um and also like like just what we're talking about the idea of how a forest is structured it was like we had a very narrow view of how ecosystems worked and it led us to the huge problems we're facing today loss of biodiversity climate change you know that all you could trace so much of that back to this narrow parochial thinking and but when you get you know when i came in i started looking at the forest as not as a bunch of competitors but as a network of communicators and and you know, suddenly our view of the forest has changed and, and everything we do with the forest should change in, in concert with that. And we should be, you know, protecting that biodiversity and those networks and relationships because that's what builds a thriving community. Um, and I don't, think, I don't think that, you know, it, it, it not only opens up our understanding of ecology, it also opens up opportunities for other people to come in and, and build on that on that scientific knowledge mm -hmm. to get a fuller understanding of how, how these systems work. You're listening to Spoken Earth with me, Adam Weymouth, in conversation with Suzanne Simard. I, I wanted to just talk, talk about language a bit. Uh, I wanted to read this sentence, but there's, you know, there's a lot of sentences like this in, in the book. You write... Um, Trees and plants have agency. They perceive, relate, and communicate. They exercise various behaviors. They cooperate, make decisions, learn, and remember. And you also use the word intelligence quite a lot. You know, I, I can see that these are very, quite provocative words in the scientific community. Um, I was listening to a interview with a plant biologist called Monica Galliano yeah. recently uh, mm -hmm. who does these kind of Pavlovian experiments with mm -hmm. plants to show that they can remember in much the same way that Pavlov proved, proved with dogs and she was also saying that these words like she says that plants can hear and and communicate and there's a huge amount of pushback that that people say you know if you start using these words for for non-human species you're going to corrupt yeah could go kind science. of preempt your findings and and do you buy into that is, is that scientific rigor important in a way or has it kind of got us to the place where we are today yeah i mean i was certainly trained to you know not to anthropomorphize mm. like um, jane goodall naming her gorillas and getting right. told off for we're, doing it because exactly yeah. we're very strongly trained not to do that 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 if you become a friend of your subject, like Jane did with her 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 gorillas, um, you can no longer be objective mm. because you're looking for things. Um, and so it's really like there's nothing worse that could happen to a scientist to say, "Oh, you're anthropomorphizing," right? Um, and so it was really drilled into us. But I started to realize that that was causing a lot of problems because, of course, we're, you know involved in our earth <laughs> we live here and we're interdependent with all these species and by ignoring our our own role in ecosystems 
um, which really that scientific method, even though it seems like, oh, she's making a big stretch here. No, it's not a stretch. By by getting scientists to think of themselves as separate from their subjects or humans as separate from the earth or the body as separate from the from your mind, all those separations uh, have been important in, in leading us to not understand um, how, how our ecosystems and our environment works. works. Mm-hmm. And it's led us to make all kinds of mistakes, um, you know, like, like making monocultures and, you know, agricultural fields that are biological deserts and, you know, overfishing and <laughs> because we don't understand that, that fish live in communities. And, um, and so, so I think that by, by reengaging ourselves as, um, as, key players in communities and 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 the one way that we can help people to re relearn that that we are interdependent with all of our brothers and sisters all the non-human kin and species one way to re-engage is to use the language that we relate to in ourselves and and to say okay you know that you know i see all of these um you know familial and community based behaviors and learning that goes on in plant communities and and if i use those words then people understand it right away so it's one of the reasons i called mother trees the mother trees they were nurturing the forest but i knew that people would be able to understand that immediately mm-hmm. um and so it's helped right it's a it's a great communication tool and it's a reconnecting tool it it helps us to to realize that we we are so related to all these plants and animals and and that that will help us to take back our role of being responsible for caring for them because we've forgotten that so easily right and that's what's led us to be so exploitive in our environment mm. yeah, it's almost that rather than anthropomorphizing trees what we want to do is sort of naturalize ourselves if we could just yeah. think of ourselves as another yeah. Lot of biological processes that that you know that then manifest consciousness or whatever in the same way yeah. that you were saying that the forests, yeah, you know, there shouldn't almost be anything special about what you're saying. It's just the fact that we feel like we need to sort of unpick it piece yeah. by piece, and every single time that we, you know, find out that an octopus has intelligence or that we're so a, a certain animal can do this, <laughs> we're astonished. Oh, oh, you know, fish feel pain, or you yeah. know, but it's like it's almost like a huge amount of unlearning that we need yeah. to go through to get back to what was pretty apparent all along yeah and and, you know when when people learn about about the connections that i'm describing in forests it's almost like they're so relieved and and they say oh i've known this all along i'm so glad you know that we've reconnected in this way because we know this stuff in our hearts Mm. we we are connected you know these creatures are our 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 kin right Mm. And, and many you know you know earlier cultures or aboriginal cultures or indigenous cultures around the world have always saw themselves seen themselves as one with their with their fellow trees and wolves and salmon they they in fact call them their kin centric circles mm-hmm. and you know the the trees are the tree people and the salmon are the salmon people and you know the wolf is the wolf person and so there's personhood assigned to all these other creatures and with that comes this natural respect um, and and caring as though our lives were entwined with theirs, and and so we we you know as people, as all of us and ultimately indigenous to this earth have known this since since we evolved, and and we just forgot it in the last yeah thousand years. We've become so lonely. Yeah, and 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 now we're 
we're going, okay, we've got to get this back mm. because we're, it's, it's killing us. Mm. And it's, I mean, you've become, you've been very successful in, in what you've done and, and the way that you, your TED Talk's been watched five million times. You've inspired Avatar, you've, you, in the Richard Powers novel, the success of the book, you know, which is kind of amazing, isn't it? Because you're, you're a tree biologist <laughs> at the end, you know, we, we haven't heard the names of 99.9% of the scientists that are working. It feels like you've, like you say, you've caught something that people kind of need to hear. You're, mm -hmm. you're, th th there's occasionally maybe a scientific idea comes along that just, that we need, that, that, that it's expressing yeah. something that people kind of deeply feel. You're, you're tapping into a story really at the end of the day. It's, you know, yeah. you're, you're scientifically proving it, but it's the story that, that yeah. people want, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, it is. It's, it's the timing of, it's our times, right? It's, we're in a crisis, a climate crisis, a biodiversity crisis, um, you know, a pandemic is a crisis and people were, you know, are desperately looking for solutions so that we have a future for our, our children. And, and so I think that this, you know, this resonates because it's so it's, it, we feel it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it, it's the, it, you know, I, I happen to be doing this at a time when it's so needed. And, and I think, you know, and keep in mind that, you know, I did my initial experiment in 1992. <laughs> that was 30 years ago. I've been talking about this stuff for 30 years. Um, I mean, maybe my ability to speak has gotten better. I've gotten older and more comfortable. And I, my story has grown because I've had to gotten to do so much more research. Um, and so there, it's much fuller. But I think it's also that people are more ready to hear this. Mm -hmm. Um, the, and, and we're ready because we need to hear it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You mentioned just before about um, Indigenous people and the, the, the Indigenous stories. And I know that increasingly you're doing more work with First Nations scientists and, and you know, f finding that it's not just it's not just been there in their stories, but it's been there in their science as well. And when I, when I was working in Alaska, I found often this kind of conflict between Western science and, and Indigenous science have you found that instructive to to be working really it's been so sort of great discipline? yeah uh, you know i i um i didn't really work with indigenous people for a long time i didn't really have the opportunity or you know i i, I worked you know it, it felt like such a trudge right because <laughs> i was fighting the establishment and it's kind of lonely and then i about 10 years ago, I, I, I got a postdoc. Her name is Teresa Ryan, and she's a Simsian woman. Um, she's a cedar basket weaver, a fishery scientist, but she's First Nations. And we just started talking, and she was talking, you know, in the language of a First Nations person and that worldview that we're all connected and we're all interdependent. And, and she was talking about the salmon story and the bears and how they're linked together. And I just felt like, suddenly I'd come home. Mm -hmm. and finally, I was talking to somebody that, that I'd been trying to put this story together about connection, you know, and, and get people to understand it and was just never gaining traction. And then realizing there are whole nations out there that have been thinking about this for thousands of years. And, and, and now, you know, I feel like, yeah, I've come home because I've found the scientists that I, that, that I work with, that I, 
I, we start from a higher level, right? <laughs> we don't have to go back and prove things that they've known for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. And so we've really just advancing, you know, we're moving forward, bringing Western science and indigenous science together to try to restore our damaged forests as quickly as we can so that they can regain their biodiversity, so they can regain their carbon stocks, so that they can be repopulated with the salmon. Um, and then, you know, fighting to, to just protect the remaining old growth forests, which are sacred around the world, you know, the sacred headwaters of the boreal forests, of the temperate forests, of the of the tropical, the Amazon forests. We need those places to stay sacred and whole mm-hmm. because they, you know, that is where, you know, our big biogeochemical cycles are driven by what's going on in those forests. And once they collapse, you know, we're going to be... It's going to be so difficult. So I'm just working really hard with them to try to bring it together um, so that we can, you know, stop crossing these tipping points before we get there. Yeah. And, and, and you know, with this understanding, it's almost more tragic to watch happening, isn't it? Because we're not just logging bits of woods or sort of nice places to be. We're logging flourishing, thriving, cooperative yeah. communities. Mm, yeah. I wanna, and I want to f- sort of just finish by asking you about that, about hope i suppose about regeneration you know it's you know the wildfires are getting worse logging is continuing unabated the last ipcc report was pretty grim reading um and yet you speak with sort of passion and 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 hope having watched a huge amount of deforestation in your lifetime and i I just wonder if we can perhaps just finish by just talking about about that where you where you find your hope how you yeah. Where you see the future going? Well, you know, one of the things that gives me hope is what I've learned about how these ecosystems work, that they are designed to heal and regenerate. They're regenerative systems. Mm-hmm. Um, it's pretty hard to keep them down. And um, so, for example, where I grew up, I, I said I grew up in a province of old-growth forests, but when Br- British Columbia was colonized in the late 1800s, the settlers actually burned the landscape to the ground looking for gold and minerals and silver and to build rail railroads and now those forests grew back by the time I was born that's why I could see all these old growth forests and around the town that I live in Nelson it was burnt to a crisp I've got there's photos in the town where there's no trees around at all and yet I'm surrounded by these beautiful trees so I know that the forest recovers Mm -hmm. Um, and of course you can only hit a forest so many times and it, it might not but but they are designed to regenerate so and, and I know we know enough about what we need to keep there, like these big old trees, as much as we can to provide the seed. That seed has evolved through many climatic events in the past, so they're designed to survive through climatic upheavals in the future. If we can just keep these legacies, we'll have all the parts we need to restore the forest. We, we know what we need to do. Um, and then the forest, once it's got all its bits, and even if we have to migrate some things back into them or to move things because climate velocity is so rapid they will organize themselves into healthy ecosystems they're, they're designed to do that so that that's what gives me hope and and i also think that there is no other choice but to be hopeful you've been listening to spoken earth edit and produced by uli matson Music by Uli Matson, performed along with Ben O'Connor and Amir Shawat. It's a Lacuna podcast, and we'll be back with more soon. Thanks for listening. <laughs>